0: I am Sandy Ouellette. And I am Nancy Marie. Co-chairs of Beyond the Mask Committee to evaluate scholarly,
1: doctoral projects.
2: Next deadline for work to be considered to present on Beyond the Mask is October 1.
1: Please complete the one-page
0: application found on Beyond the Mask webpage to be considered. We look
2: forward to working with you.
0: Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit CRNAFinancialPlanning.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, BeyondTheMaskPodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs and advanced practice nurses with Certified Financial Planner Jeremy Stanley and CRNA Sharon Pierce. Jeremy Stanley has worked with CRNAs for more than 23 years, and Sharon Pierce is a former president of the AANA and the NCANA. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA and advanced practice nurse industries. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7.
3: Sharon, welcome to the show today. It's good to see you.
2: <laughs> well, thank you for letting me join you today, Jeremy. Absolutely.
3: Anytime, you know, uh, I feel like you're an integral part of the show. So oh, anytime so. you want to join me on it, I mean, <laughs> I, I will gladly make room for you. Okay. You're
2: you're so good. You know, uh, the billing <laughs> on uh, Apple does say your name first anyway. <laughs>
3: Oh, I I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, to be (laughs) honest. (laughs) Oh, me. Well, Sharon, I know you're extremely excited today to do this show. We got another wonderful guest, and I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm going to say that this episode is highly... Anticipated.
2: It is absolutely highly anticipated. (laughs) I have been waiting so long um, to tape this one because this is something that clearly has an impact on my day, not personally. (laughs)
3: okay you're telling us a lot about you today that's (laughs) wonderful
2: Uh, but I think this is going to have a huge impact on the anesthesia profession going forward and so without further ado I would like to introduce Dr. Daniel King and I will let him introduce his topic and tell us a little bit about him so Daniel
1: yeah, thank you for having me here. Um, I am thrilled to be here. This is my favorite podcast to listen to and to be a guest on the show is just surreal. So I'm happy to be here today and talk about a topic that I find to be personally very uh, uh interesting in terms of a scientific perspective and how we take care of patients. This uh, topic for me really has presented itself Just through a natural spirit of clinical inquiry in my day-to-day practice, particularly in the endoscopy suite, where I had observed that patients were presenting more frequently as patients undergoing anesthesia, but with a recent history of cannabis use. Um, and they were commonly presenting with nausea and vomiting for upper and uh, upper GI series um, and, and tests, but they were seemingly requiring more and more anesthetic, and they were seemingly at higher risk for cardiac and respiratory uh, adverse events. And so I've sought out to just really pursue this uh, topic because I find that there's limited evidence in being able to meet um, the care of patients. And so I'm looking to generate my own evidence, but synthesize evidence and translate that to clinical practice as well. Aside from practicing as a CRNA, uh, I, I teach. I'm an assistant clinical professor currently at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, where um, I've been for the past three years. And uh, we're looking to translate this knowledge into future clinical practitioners as well, because they're going to be taking care of patients at an even higher rate than we are, and uh, currently, in fact the rate of use has just exploded exponentially in a recent 10-year period.
2: Obviously, today we're talking about cannabis use, and I do a lot of GI, and I have seen exactly everything that you had just expounded on. So let's talk about the legal status of cannabis uh, right now.
1: Yeah. So, you know, cannabis in and of itself is not uh, a novel concept. It's cultivation period has actually spanned over 12,000 years but we're still <laughs> learning about it we're still learning how it affects people and what its place is in our society and i think what we're what we're experiencing right now is that it has actually reemerged from a really long period of prohibition And, you know, even reefer madness back in the 1930s, right, Um, to be more recently actually legalized for medicinal use starting in California back in 96 and really expanding to legalization for medicinal use now in about 36 states currently and recreational use in 19 states. And every time I go to give a talk, I'm updating those numbers and it's happening at a really rapid Mm -hmm. pace. It is still federally illegal as a Schedule One drug. And really every state has individualized legislation measures that make cannabis either fully legalized, either medical and decriminalized, or um, you can maybe have CBD with THC as an ingredient only. Um, or it can be fully illegal, uh, as it is in some states still. But it has been in a Schedule One drug category in the same class as heroin, ecstasy, LSD since 1970. And the FDA defines that as it having no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Now, we know that's an archaic idea. And it's just simply BS because cannabis is scientifically backed as having medicinal value. Um, Of those who use cannabis, it's estimated less than 30% actually have a cannabis use disorder. And even fewer than that um, diagnosed as it carries actual DSM-5 criteria for a true diagnosis of a use disorder. So that's schedule one category has legal consequences, but it also has really intense research consequences as well.
3: Yeah. And I'm sure we'll get to this in a little bit, but there are are obviously consequences to an anesthesia professional for someone who has used cannabis and so forth. But I guess, do they teach SRNAs about this when they're in their anesthesia programs? Is this something that you know, is commonly known throughout the industry now, or is there just a little bit of research on it?
1: Yeah, well, I can tell you that it's not happening. The education is not happening at the same rate that people are using it. Um, <laughs> we know now, oh, that's good. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so stick with me because the, um, you know, think about it from an educational perspective, think about and share and think about um What you were taught about tobacco products in nursing school and anesthesia school, and the implications on the respiratory system with tobacco products. We know now that the incidence of cannabis use for the first time in modern human history has actually surpassed that rate of tobacco use. Now, that's according to say that one
2: more time because I think (laughs) this is very important.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, according to a recent Gallup poll. For the first time in modern human history, more patients are smoking cannabis than tobacco. And so think about all of the implications for tobacco products that we've learned over time. And now compare that to what we know about cannabis and what's being taught in educational programs. Now, this has been explored a little bit. Um, My dear cannabis nursing colleagues, Dr. Carrie Clark and Rachel Parmley, found in a recent study that the the primary source of knowledge for nursing program students on cannabis is actually not textbooks. It's not classroom knowledge. It's not even clinical knowledge, but their primary source of education is news and media. And more than 90% of those students that they worked with and surveyed did believe that there's therapeutic benefit of the drug. They expressed desire to be taught about of it, uh, taught about cannabis. But almost three quarters of them strongly disagreed that it's being taught in their schools. So we have an obligation to teach on this, and it's not only from that external point of view of cannabis use, but also the physiological implications because they're vast. This endocannabinoid system that's innate and endogenous within each and every one of us with receptors in virtually every single body system has tremendous implications for how our drugs work um, and for um, how our anesthetic agents interact with them, but also their physiological effects in terms of cardiac, respiratory, gastrointestinal consequences, and so forth. So just like we teach about, you know, the alpha and beta receptors, I will argue we should also be teaching about cannabinoid receptors as well.
2: So why are patients using cannabis and how are they using it?
1: Well, you can get it just about any way you want it, whether that is in the traditional form, whether it's in an edible, a vape or spa products, or even dog treats now, right? Um, I conducted a national survey of patients who have used cannabis and accessed the healthcare system within the past five years. And the data that I found from the study is pretty consistent with national trends. Most patients are either smoking or vaping cannabis, Um, and then they're looking at other routes uh, in order of use from edibles to tinctures, oils, capsules, topicals, lozenges, and they're using it for a variety of reasons. The number one reason uh, is, depending on which study you look at, is either anxiety or chronic pain. Now, we're in the business of treating and knowing all about a patient's analgesia experience. And the fact that so many patients are using cannabis for the treatment of pain uh, warrants our attention, right, as anesthesia providers. Trending use uh, is uh, the utilization of cannabis for sleep as well. It reduces sleep onset latency, and it has also been associated with greater ease of falling asleep, increased slow wave sleep and increase total sleep time. Particularly useful is the use of cannabis for the decreasing of nightmares as well. And when I uh, have been speaking with my colleagues who are in the Veterans Affairs uh, Healthcare Administration um, and in the hospital systems there, they will tell me that their patients are utilizing it often for PTSD, but also to reduce the incidence of nightmares associated with sleep. Now, arguably, those who seek more medicinal value in cannabinoid products are choosing those with broad spectrum or greater CBD properties, whereas those who are seeking recreational use tend to choose products in higher THC concentrations. And those THC concentrations have gone up tremendously from about 3% back in the 90s to about 13% on average currently. So with these drugs and variable ratios and concentrations, our patients are experimenting. They're titrating themselves with or without our guidance. And we're seeing a lot of patients are also self-substituting their own prescriptive regimens with cannabis, even for things like antihypertensives or their antidepressants or their opioid regimens. So it's really important that we inquire with our patients the route that they're taking their cannabinoid products, how often they're taking it, why they're taking it, what is the dose. When I ask my patients, do you know your dose of cannabis, uh, the THC to CBD uh, ratios contained in your cannabis products? Many patients don't even know, and the labeling of these products is quite poor the industry is really poorly regulated and truly the only way to know those concentrations is to obtain a certificate of laboratory analysis as the best source of the contents in those products well i mean are there stipulations
3: on the amount of thc uh, you know as it deals with anesthesia daniel or is it just so nebulous out there right now that um you know, thirteen percent compared to three percent. You know, or are we just kind of stabbing in the dark on it?
1: In terms of which percent concentrations affect an anesthetic outcome? Correct. Yeah, so you know this is um, this is a really hard subject to pin down, and it has a lot to do with conflicting literature. So there's a concern that patients who use cannabis and higher THC concentrations, may require more anesthesia. And anecdotally, yes, that is the experience. There are many individualized case reports in which the end user or the uh, um, the person who is providing the anesthetic is describing this for the end user as higher higher anesthetic agent requirements in terms of propofol dose, in terms of inhalational agent, in terms of adjuncts to get a patient to sleep and to keep them asleep. And that is very concerning for us because of course, subanesthetic dosing increases the potential for recall or awareness or even respiratory events in the lighter plane of anesthesia. Um, And there are some studies that have examined this. The first one dates back to 2009. Flisberg et al had um, found that patients who used cannabis required about 50 milligrams more propofol on average to facilitate LMA insertion. Fast forward about 10 years, Twardowski et al. found that endoscopy patients required about 220% more propofol if they were undergoing an endoscopy. However, this is in the presence of midazolam, fentanyl, some other confounding factors, and it was a relatively clinical and significant difference in dose of 43 versus 14 milligrams a propofol. So if you do the math on that, yes, it equals 220.5%, but I don't quantify that in the same amount terms of clinical significance. So I decided to follow up this study with my own, and in 2021, I published a paper in the ANA journal that found no statistically significant difference in propofol dose, adjuncts, cardiac or respiratory morbidity, mortality, or satisfaction in patients who used cannabis and so that just further contributed to the conflicting literature
2: in my practice. And I do a lot of GI. My record is 1800 milligrams to get one of them to uh, Get them. Holy a, a cow. Yes. yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I have seen definitely uh, a huge, a huge difference. And I'm going to ask you another question. Okay. Uh, I have heard that, that, THC now is a little bit more powerful, say, than it was whenever I was in college. <laughs> is that the case? That
1: absolutely, absolutely. So you know, uh, in a span of twenty years, the average concentration of THC has gone up ten percent. But patients can uh, patients can obtain concentrations higher than that of which we are able to study in a laboratory. So remember earlier on, I was telling you about the Schedule One status of cannabis and how that creates such intense research restrictions. Um, And truly, what we're able to study in a laboratory is not the same product that a patient is going down the street and obtaining from a dispensary. So it's hard to have the sound scientific knowledge. And it's you're gonna be hard pressed to find what we call the gold standard articles and research that are the prospective randomized controlled trials where we've actually measured this in patients. In fact, in, in 2015, it was attempted to be measured, and they had uh, some researchers had looked at injecting intravenous THC in patients preoperatively they had to halt the study early because patients were having really adverse reactions. And under the strictest of protocols, it's really hard to conduct research. Scientifically, it makes sense though. So even though we have limited research and we have some conflicting research, scientifically, it makes sense from what we understand about enzymes. THC, the main psychoactive component in cannabis is metabolized primarily by very specific enzymes in the liver within the CP450 system. Propofol shares a common pathway of cytochrome P450-2C9. Now that is the same pathway of metabolism for THC. So scientifically, it makes sense that if there is a high-frequency chronic user of high-dose THC, that they would require more propofol to either go to sleep or stay asleep.
0: You
3: know, people are utilizing this and we truthfully don't have an exact ramification of what it means giving an anesthetic. And, you know, there's all different types of conflicting information out there. It's funny because I I read a study about this. Gosh, I want to say it was earlier this year in the Economist magazine of all places. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the details of it, but it was a study. And I think it was John, no, it was Cleveland Clinic, I think. They did a study, and they basically were saying that people that that smoked pot or you know had CBD in their blood, um, they needed a tremendous amount more of anesthetic in, in a situation when they're under a surgical going in surgical procedure. So they kind of corresponded to that 2009 study, and I think they also said that. Um, folks with CBD or a history of that had more pain, you know, more complications after surgery, and so forth. So it, it obviously means we we need to continue to do a lot more research um, on this, and you know, because we're definitely seeing more patients and more people doing CBD at a time. I mean, you can't and go out THC. to any place. Um, right now that that is not offering cbd for sale i mean they're around us and you know it's not legal here in north carolina but um but you're still seeing those products so so what are the cardiac respiratory or other risk factors for patients who use cannabis
1: Yeah. So this is the, this is the big deal to us as anesthesia providers, right? Because no matter what the belief is in terms of therapeutic benefits of cannabinoids, um, and there are legitimate uses for cannabis as a medical product. We're in the business of mitigating risk for our patients and avoiding adverse outcomes. So we're chiefly concerned about the risk to the cardiac and the respiratory systems. It also requires, though, that we understand the endocannabinoid system physiology, as well as the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic actions of cannabis and its components. Um, Patients may be using products in high THC concentrations, or they may be using primarily CBD products or something else. Um, And so that is an important first step in risk stratification. When we talk about those primary components of CBD and THC, the effects between the two in the cardiovascular system are virtually opposite. So it's important that you know what types of products and what concentrations and what doses and what ratios your patients are using and you're having, the, having that conversation with them. So I'll give you an example. THC is more likely to intensify tachycardia and hypertension, but CBD is more likely to induce bradycardia and bring down the blood pressure. So the response that occurs when the two uh, are, are combined is usually existing in some biphasic form, consisting of an initial tachycardia and increased blood pressure, then followed by bradycardia and hypotension. And it also depends on when they last used it. So with acute use, those sympathetic symptoms tend to predominate. But in high doses and in chronic use, the parasympathetic, slower symptoms tend to be more dominant. So tachycardia is that most common sympathetic side effect. And we think that it occurs due to selective beta-adrenergic stimulation. And we know that because we have successfully blocked it in studies with propranol. So drugs that increase the heart rate like epinephrine, atropine, and robinol, of course, but also think of drugs like ketamine should be avoided in patients with acute use, with tachycardia, and with uh, predisposition to myocardial injury. For this same reason, there is a very serious concern that there's increased risk of MI in these patients, myocardial ischemia and infarction. And that increased risk of myocardial ischemia in the setting of increased myocardial demand seems to be worsened by increasing doses of available THC and within that first 60 minutes after smoking. So recently published guidelines will now actually endorse delay of elective procedures for this reason, for at least two hours from the time of smoking, because the risk of death actually increases by two and a half to four times
2: really because i've had gi patients wow. that sat in i had one gal who come in she's 16 and she smoked in her car with her mother there <laughs> before she came in
1: right and not to be alarmist but this is not just in patients with pre-existing Uh, coronary artery disease. This is happening even in young, otherwise healthy patients. So it is legitimate. And um, ASRA put forth guidelines this year that are really the first ever established guidelines that back up this delay of elective procedures and making that decision uh, under the guidance and and the decision to protect the myocardium.
2: Okay, two hours. So I should have delayed her two hours and two
1: hours yeah at least
2: and um, wow. I, I did not now I will tell you whenever I one thing that I've run into doing GI is when I ask patients if they smoke they'll say no and you see marijuana use on their chart and you say do you smoke marijuana yes Well, that's smoking, but they don't believe that it's smoking. So I've had to change my preoperatively, my preoperative assessment to specifically say, do you smoke? I also have to do, do you vape? Now, the one thing I have not asked, do they vape THC? Uh, I guess I'm going to have to change that too, because they'll also tell you they don't smoke. And then they tell you they vape. Actually, I went in, I was in GI last week, opened the curtain, and the gal is vaping in the room whenever I open the curtain to take her back for her procedure. Wow.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised, and and it is surprising, but it really shouldn't be, and These instances in which we encounter patients using cannabis, they're using it for a variety of reasons. And we know that the the use is is prevalent, but I would argue among the national data that's out there, it's actually even higher than that for our patient population because they're using it for medical conditions that they're really struggling with, whether that's nausea and vomiting, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. PTSD, chronic pain syndromes, for which they're seeking care. So um I think it is absolutely excellent that you're directly asking, inquiring about cannabis use specifically. I have been part of a research project that's been uh, just wrapping up at Northeastern University that specifically focuses about how we assess for and screen for cannabis use. And the number one thing you can do is directly ask about it. We shouldn't be asking, do you smoke? Or do you use any drugs? Um, Or do you use anything that you're not prescribed? We really shouldn't be dancing around the question. We should be doing exactly what you're doing and asking directly about using can- cannabis. Cannabis is the most commonly used drug in the world. And yet we're not capturing this important use, this important piece of data about cannabis use. I found in a retrospective chart review that I conducted in Massachusetts, only 7% of my patients disclosed cannabis use. Now there's a huge disagreement there because the state prevalence data will tell me at least 20% of my patients are actually using cannabis. So We should be asking, have you used cannabis products? Why are you using them? Have you ever had a bad reaction or withdrawn from them? Uh, What is the primary way you use cannabis? How often? When did you last use it? And what concentration and contents are in the products that you consume?
2: Patients don't even know what dosages of their prescribed medicines that's right that's going to be a real stretch and you know you brought up something earlier that i never even thought about i never ask about edibles and Hmm. you know they may be taken on before they come in and we've all had patients who didn't wake up when we thought they should wake up and then you know there was a surgeons years ago of people taking valerian to help them sleep and you may have somebody come in and they're just not waking up and then when they wake up finally and you ask them we find out they're taking valerian or oh. or some uh, some other drug that was is not a prescription drug so they failed to uh disclose that it was really big in the early 2000s about herbals and things like that and we found out that only 20 percent of people are telling you all the other things uh, that they take and Actually, to go to the point about uh, THC, I had one gal, and I asked her, and she looked straight at me, she goes, if I tell you yes, will you call the law? (laughs) And, you know, I never thought about that until she said that, and I said, no, (laughs) no. I won't she said well then i smoke pot every day i smoke it three <laughs> times a day okay that's fine i just need to know for other reasons any other ways we should be screening our patients besides just straight out asking them
1: i mean having the conversation is the best thing that you can you can do but i i will also tell you from that research i found that the number one reason that patients are willing to disclose their cannabis use history is comfortability with their healthcare provider. So if you can establish that safe environment for them, that psychologically safe environment where they're not worrying persistently or perseverating with worry over, am I going to be treated differently uh, if I disclose this uh, information? They're more likely to disclose it, and so um, and we classify that as anticipated stigma. And from my study, I found that that or that domain of anticipated stigma is actually the greatest barrier to disclosure.
3: Can they sign their own informed consent if they're if they're using cannabis? Is that is that an issue?
1: You know, that's a great question, and uh, it's one that comes up frequently uh, as I'm speaking to healthcare providers across the country. And it makes sense because cannabis is associated with dose-dependent impairments in cognitive function, alterations of perception and memory, and the ability to provide informed consent is, like I said, one of the most uh, common questions I get as a result of practitioners coming to this realization of this and feeling a sense of liability and duty to protect both themselves and the patient. But I'm not so sure why we overcomplicate it because we make this assessment all the time. And the American Surgical Association states very plainly that if a patient appears intoxicated and incompetent or unable to sign consent, then he or she is not able. And your cues that the patient is intoxicated will be things like psychomotor slowing, impaired pupillary reflexes, euphoria or psychosis, or they're just not answering questions appropriately, right? These are all signs to you that they're not able to sign informed consent. And it's consistent with your neurocognitive assessment that you're always doing anyway. Um, What you should be doing in that informed consent process though, is discussing the cannabis related considerations and informing the patient of their perioperative risks, since it is truly an informed consent.
0: If you're going to the 2023 annual Congress in Seattle, then listen up. This is your chance to see Jeremy and Sharon in person and attend a live podcast taping. And even better, get some CE credit out of the deal. Mark your calendars for Sunday, August 20th at 3.15 in the afternoon. Because Jeremy and Sharon will be conducting a live podcast taping at that 2023 AANA Annual Congress in the stunning city of Seattle, Washington. You are cordially invited to join this enlightening conversation. Their topic, they will always be listening, utilizing podcasts in your curriculum and personal life. For continued learning. It's an event designed for students, professionals, and indeed anyone with a hunger for learning. They'll delve deep into how you can leverage podcasts as a powerful learning tool in your daily routine. But that's not all. By attending this live taping, you're not just gaining invaluable insights, you're also earning one Class A CE credit. It's a fantastic opportunity to learn, engage, and earn educational credits all at once. So don't forget Sunday, August 20th, at 315 at the AANA Annual Congress in Seattle. Be there for on the Mask and go on this journey of learning together with Jeremy and Sharon.
2: All right, so we talked about delaying for a couple of hours if they have acutely um, used cannabis, but is there any reason why you would cancel a case?
1: So the cancellation truly uh, is, is um, really related to those cases that are elective and patients who are um, acutely intoxicated or um, they've smoked cannabis within two hours prior due to myocardial risk. Um, and then urgency of the procedures, of course, factored into that.
2: Now, I'm going to ask you another question because I've done a little bit of reading and I've seen this clinically. I find that their airways are more irritable than if they are cigarette smokers is is that sort of shored up in the in the research or is that just my perception?
1: No, that's I mean that's a great uh, insight because um, this is this is highly debated. You know, um, there's uh, some who say just treat them just like a cigarette smoker because a lot of the events that occur in the cannabis smoking patient occur in cigarette smoking patients, like coughing, wheezing. They demonstrate obstructive patterns and their PFTs, um, but because smoking cannabis is largely unfiltered, there are arguably higher amounts of tar and irritants that are going to enter the airway when compared to tobacco. So that increased irritability makes sense. Um, I they are similar
2: about that. Unfiltered, yeah, absolutely. It sure it's unfiltered. Is. What about and in, in, and in the bong? <laughs> So In the
1: okay, so this a is a great point. So here's a, here's a big difference between smoking a joint, smoking a bong, or even vaping is the temperature. Mm-hmm. So when you smoke um, a joint or a cigarette, um, that is a process of combustion. Vaping. Um, tends to uh, be formed by physics surrounding conduction and convection. So, you know, think back to your physics class and think about how I'd that process not, works. But we'll <laughs> <laughs> or don't, just let me explain it to you. So, you know, think about it like a convection oven, mm-hmm. right? So there's, there the heating method is a little bit different. So you're not burning the food directly in order to cook it, right? The convection is blowing warm air, to to warm the product. And that allows the dispersion of um, the components of cannabis, it allows the decarboxylation reaction to occur, um, to make it bioavailable. And it also disperses flavonoids, terpenoids, there are over 500 chemical compounds in cannabis, 60 of them are pharmacologically active. How they're released depends on the heating method. So the conduction convection methods are slower at a lower heat, but that combustion heating method is at a higher heat. And in fact, cannabis burns at a higher temperature than tobacco. So arguably it is more irritable to the airways.
2: Hmm. Okay. So it is exactly what I I thought. Hmm. So Tell me, are, can patients use cannabis as a pain medication after surgery?
1: Good question. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I get asked this question a lot by my patients. Um, I also occasionally do sedation for pain procedures. And a lot of my patients are using cannabis for, for pain there.
2: All right. This is another kind of off topic question, because if let's say uh, cannabis is legalized in the state that you work in. The question I've had, you know, sometimes whenever your count comes up wrong, you just say, just give me a drug test as a CRNA. I've done that before. Uh, I, I didn't take it. We'll just get a drug test. What if pot is legal in your state and you have smoked it and you pop positive? How does that affect an anesthesia provider, a student, whomever? because we've all had to do drug tests. And if it's legal, what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so, okay, I'm I'm really glad you asked um, this question because often it's the elephant in the room because it's not just patients who are using cannabis, it's actually providers, um, whether we wanna acknowledge that or not. And it's better if we acknowledge that reality. So in order to answer your question, um, I'll answer it the way I, my students hate me answering questions, which is it depends. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the institutional policy and the state regulations where you're working. So let's take Illinois for an example, because I live in Chicago. Recreational use became legal here in 2020. So legally, anyone over the age of 21 is allowed to possess certain amounts of cannabis flower concentrates or THC. Medical professionals, as we know, are often held um, to higher standards, but in the state, if you are a medical professional, you might be allowed to use cannabinoids so long as you're adhering to your employer's drug policies. Now acknowledge some employers may have a zero tolerance drug policy. Um, And also remember, THC can be detected in the urine for up to a month after you use it. If you work for the federal government, so say you work at the VA, You cannot use cannabis at all, even if it's legal in your state because it's federally illegal. You can't violate state law, you cannot work impaired while you're treating patients, and you cannot drive under the influence. There are cases um, where uh, medical professionals have been fired for this, and it's also likely going to be reported to the board. There have been notable wrongful termination suits and controversies uh, filing for violations of state-dependent medical marijuana acts, which state that, you know, if the employee presents a medical prescription or authorization for use and inform the employer prior to drug screening, that they should have certain protections in place. But we see cases and instances from uh, reported cases, that that's just not the case. So my advice is know your local regulations and state laws. And of course, I am not in the business of providing any legal advice, Um, (laughs) but uh, perhaps a defense attorney would be uh, a good person to consult as well. (laughs) (laughs) It
3: sounds like stuff I say. Yes,
2: yes. Yes,
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes, it does.
2: So how long... Uh, I'm just asking uh, if a provider is uh, partaking how long should they wait you know with alcohol it's used you know it's the next day or whatever because we all know that there there are providers who may have a glass of wine in the evening and tomorrow you go to work any thoughts about THC the half-life how long it's in your system I'm surprised it it stays in your urine for a month.
1: Yeah. So, you know, cannabis is interesting. So, you know, the contents are highly lipophilic and they're highly protein bound. So it it sticks around for a while. When it's inhaled, the duration of action is about two to four hours. And of course, that's dose dependent and dependent on, you know, independent metabolism, things like that. When it's ingested, it's about four to six hours. But regardless of route, the literature suggests that the cognitive and psychomotor impairment can last up to uh, 24 hours.
2: 24 hours?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it, it sticks around. It has a long half-life of about 20 to 30 hours, but that can be a one to two weeks and chronic use and yes the elimination time is about 25 to 30 days
2: oh my goodness wow that that's that's a sound i i knew it was a long time and so
3: does golden seal really work i mean you know you hear all this stuff i don't know so anything need, about anyway. that <laughs> You know, back in the day, you know, everybody would smoke a joint sometime and they'd say, oh man, you got to get the golden seal. It takes it out in case you get the P test at work, you know. Oh my gosh. You'll have to educate
1: me more about that.
3: It's
2: about like when they used to carry potatoes around. Because if you would take a bite of a raw potato, as they say, it helped if you had to blow, if you got pulled while you were drinking. I mean, there's always something. But I knew that uh, (laughs) THC stayed in the system for a while. And this is kind of an interesting story. One, this has been a long time ago, one of our daughters came in and and Pierce caught a whiff of her hair. And uh, he said, you've been smoking pot? Nope, nope, nope. He brought her into my study. He said, smell her hair. What does that smell like? And I said, "Mm mm-hmm, I smell it. And if she would have just come clean she would have been just fine. Right. But she told a story about it and it just eat Pierce up. And he played basketball with the pediatrician. So the next day they were playing basketball. He said, I can't stand it. I want a drug tester. And uh, the pediatrician said, you know, I can't make her Pierce's, but I can. So he calls me the next day. He said, meet me at, at the doctor's office. I've got her with me. And he told her before they got ready to go in, he said, either you're going to be mad at me or I'm going to be mad at you, maybe both. And she started
1: jabbering. (laughs) Wow.
2: But he still (laughs) made her pee in a cup.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So isn't this funny? And I mean, you put it in the inverse and think about how we we interact with our patients and we're gaining that, you know, we want that assessment and we want the knowledge too, right? And you still see to this day, a lot of drug testing of patients for THC. And I'll tell you, I don't find any utility and evidence doesn't find any utility in drug screening our own patients for THC because of this very reason. They can test positive long after those effects have worn off. It doesn't really inform or or guide your anesthetic plan much differently. And there's no study that's going to correlate poor surgical outcomes with a drug test by itself.
2: Right. 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 And it's usually not sober people who have accidents. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, I mean, what difference does it make? Because uh, a lot of our patients uh, on Friday night and Saturday nights, whenever gun and knife club meet uh they're usually <laughs> intoxicated and you've got to put them to sleep anyway so mm-hmm. you know you bring up a good point what's the what's the utility and right and, and in any way you're not going to say oh nope case canceled we're going to just let you bleed to death we, we right go ahead and we put them to sleep anyway
1: right right yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. like what's the alternative there in that mm-hmm. case so, yeah.
2: exactly
3: Sharon, you have a lot of questions about this topic. You know, do you need to...
2: Well, uh, I mean... no, but I deal with this a lot. <laughs> a lot in the GI clinic. A well, lot. It's, it's, well, it's um, funny because,
3: I mean, if, if you're, you're dealing with it, I mean, so many other CRNAs are as well. And, you know, Daniel, I mean, you... I'm not going to say... I won't put the expert tab on you, but you, you do know a lot about yes, this yes, as well. Do. And it seems to me that there's still a lot to this issue and a lot more work to do to get the word out to anesthesia providers about how to handle these situations.
2: And whenever you get some more data in, you let us know, because this topic is not going to go away. And then I've noticed in states that I go to where it's legal, you know, you can't smoke tobacco anywhere now, but by Cracky, they're smoking pot so we got rid of smoking tobacco but now they'll smoke pot anywhere and this vaping thing i about i about fell out when i opened the curtain and she's sitting there vaping
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's true i mean it's a rapidly evolving science it's ever increasingly prevalent it is a big money industry Um, And clinicians remain ambivalent uh, about the role of cannabis for medicinal purposes. It's often assumed to be for recreational purposes. There's um, very interesting literature about how it can be used to manage um, pain, uh, both in the acute and chronic settings. But we lack knowledge and we lack um, educational materials. And so we've got a lot of catching up to do. One of the biggest things that would be helpful is to reschedule the drug out of Schedule 1 because that places intense research barriers and we cannot keep up uh, research-wise at the same rate patients are using it. So in many ways, the cart has been put before the horse and we got to catch up. Mm.
2: Lots of stuff here.
3: Lots of stuff here. Yeah. I think, uh, we're just kind of hitting on the beginning stages of all this, but. Absolutely. Yeah, Sharon, I think that's uh, a pretty good place to conclude on Daniel. We want to definitely thank you for your time today. Thank you for being on the show. And you you told us earlier, you're an avid listener. Thank you for that as well. And, um, and for all you're doing, uh, for the anesthesia community out there, you know, this is the reason the show exists is to get information like this out there to all of our listeners who could end up in a, a particular situation you're like Sharon um you know with someone who smokes out in the parking lot and comes in and you know she is a seasoned notice i didn't say old Sharon i said a seasoned anesthesia provider because
2: you're too young to die you <laughs> know that's <what he>
3: <laughs> and um you know i mean even if our seasoned ana- anesthesia providers don't know this you know how do we expect um the younger folks in the industry to know it as well so But anyway, thank you very much. And uh, is there anything else you want to conclude on as we kind of wrap here?
1: You know, I I want to thank you also for getting getting this knowledge out there, or at least just starting the conversation, because we know that um, we're lacking evidence. But if we are having the conversation, in fact, having the conversation with our patients is also valuable by the way, because you may learn a lot from your patients, more than you can find in a textbook, but the increased knowledge is really important to reduce the stigmatization that presents as a barrier to providing evidence-based and informed care. Um, It increases the likelihood that we'll have honest conversations with our patients and ultimately improve outcomes from using that information to guide our anesthetics. So thank you for helping us to put that information forward and to um, have further conversation about the topic.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Sharon, you want to close us today?
2: No.
1: (laughs) Amen.
3: I love it. I, you know, sometimes Daniel, I just like to to mess with Sharon a little bit and switch up the roles and catch her off guard and so she's kind of learned that. So Yeah. Um... Just
2: be just be the man, Jeremy. Just be the man.
3: <laughs> I got it. I got it. Well, Sharon, we want to thank our listeners for listening to the show with Jeremy Stanley and
2: Sharon Pierce.
3: If you like our show and you wanna help us grow, Sharon, how can they help us grow? Well,
2: the best way to help us grow is to leave a review but make it.
3: Make it positive. We all know that there's enough negativity in this world.
2: Tell all your friends. Share us on social media. We grow by word of mouth. We're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country on the way to number...
3: Number one, just like we are in the CRNA community, and uh, that's our goal was to be number one overall, and we can't do that without our listeners, and we also can't do it without... Um, great guests like Daniel. So if anyone has uh, other folks out there that are doing things in the anesthesia world or APRN world, uh, that need to be gotten out there that's what this platform's here for so please let us know
2: yes that's the truth and um, thank you Daniel for joining us I've adored you since the first time I ever met you <laughs> 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 so uh, my chasing and you finally let me catch catch up to you
1: <laughs> oh thank you that means the world to me and thank you for having me absolutely till next time
2: it's a wrap
0: Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855 855- Three zero four thirty seven forty eight. That's eight five five three zero four thirty seven forty eight. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com.